Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Okay, good morning, everybody. So let's all begin with a word of prayer. Lord, our Father, we thank you for the gift of life, the gift of health, and the ability to gather together here today to learn your word and to glorify you. And Father, we just ask to send your spirit to illuminate our minds, for we know as we go through our series, learning and immersing ourselves in the Bible, not only today, but throughout the entire year, there are many things that are only spiritually discerned that the natural mind cannot process. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, for the gift of your presence, to sanctify us, to guide us, to be the light that leads us in our study, and to be the lamp that illuminates our minds, that your word will be implanted deep in our hearts and yield spiritual fruit decades and decades to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to continue with our series the Bible made ridiculously simple. And the topic today will be on the book of Genesis. Now I'm going to be focusing on the book of Genesis as a whole, but my particular emphasis is going to be on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And the reason why is... If the Bible is ever attacked, if the Bible is ever ridiculed, the place that's in the bullseye of the target always tends to be the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So, our English word Genesis comes from a Greek word that means origins. And Genesis is critically important because it lays the foundation upon which the entire rest of the Bible is built. So if you have a sturdy understanding of the foundation, everything else naturally follows. Genesis was written by Moses, as testified in Exodus 17.14 and Numbers 33.2. And Genesis was written roughly 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Genesis, in a timeline standpoint, covers more time than all other books in the Bible combined. And we move from three specific geographic areas in Genesis. We move from Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. Then we move to the Promised Land, which is modern-day Israel. And then we end Genesis in Egypt. What's important to understand in Genesis is that it establishes core relationships that animate the rest of the biblical narrative. It establishes a relationship between God and nature as a sovereign creator. It establishes a relationship between God and human beings, both in a general global sense and in a peculiar particular sense, in the sense of a covenant, and it also establishes proper working relationships between human beings on individual levels, on familial levels, on cultural levels, as well as natural levels. 
Genesis contains the oldest definition of faith in the entire Bible, where in Genesis 15:7 it says that Abraham trusted the Lord, and Genesis establishes the crucial idea of sacrifice as substitution for life. Let's say that again. The idea of atonement or the idea of life substituting for life doesn't pop into existence at the cross. It's actually established in Genesis where sacrifice is established to be acceptable as a substitution for life. And what happens there in Genesis is Abraham takes his son Isaac and he was going to sacrifice his son, but then an angel stopped him. And the Lord said, you're going to sacrifice the ram instead. And that is probably the most important instead in the history of humanity. The final closing point about the introduction to the book is this. Because the first three chapters of Genesis kind of set the tone for big global themes, the same themes that we see in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 are echoed in the final three chapters in the Bible. So what was in the beginning is therefore redeemed, restored, and reconciled in the end. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tells the story of our creation, of the universe, of the earth, of land, plants, animals, everybody, everywhere. It's the story of reality being made. And the big picture of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is that God is supernatural. God is someone who is transcendent. He's other than our material reality. We live in a natural world and are natural human beings, but God is supernatural. He transcends this natural world and he sovereignly and individually made every aspect of our reality. And the first four words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. Which tells us that history has a concrete start. There's a definitive point somewhere a long, long time ago where all of reality began to exist. And for there to be a beginning, there must be something other than the beginning to set things into motion. So the way you interpret the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God, you either believe it or you don't. And how you interpret those first four words is going to give you two worldviews. So if you say, in the beginning, God, yes, I believe that. Now you have a theistic worldview, meaning there is a supernatural God who was there before our beginning started and set everything into motion. If you reject that idea, you say, in the beginning, God, no, that's a lie. Now you have an atheistic worldview, a worldview that is without God. Now here's a little reality test. Everything that we experience in reality tells us that something always comes from something. Where do babies come from? A mommy and a daddy, something and a something. Where does an iPhone come from? It comes from raw materials. It comes from something and an intelligent designer making a blueprint that says, I'm going to make an iPhone. Even the idea 
that God doesn't exist is a thought that comes from what? It comes from something. It comes from a human mind. So because we live in a world where something always comes from something that tells us at the very, very beginning of reality, something had to give birth to something. Therefore, in the beginning, God. The problem with an atheistic worldview is that they'll say everything that we see in this world came from nothing. That somehow, some way, everything popped out of nothing which defies everything we know about our world. I want you to try this for a second. Try and think about nothing. Try and think about absolutely nothing. You can't even do that. Do you know why? Because you're something. You have molecules floating through your mind, which makes even thinking about nothing impossible. So a theist and an atheist can agree at one, on, on one core idea. They can both agree that in the beginning, something miraculous happened, something stupendous happened, something once in a lifetime happened. But an atheist will say, Everything came out of nothing, because of nothing, for nothing, and by nothing. But a theist will say, everything came into existence because in the beginning, God. And if a sovereign and provident God were to say, let there be light, what I would expect in my simple-mindedness, what I would expect is for there to be a bang and everything to pop into existence because something always comes from something. If there ever was nothing in the beginning, all we would have now is nothing. Very good. So, first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what's funny. When scientists talk about the material world, they can describe it in, ter in, uh, in terms of five different things. They can describe it in terms of time, in terms of an agent, in terms of force, in terms of space, and in terms of matter. Now watch this. In the beginning, time. God, agent, created force. The heavens, space, and the earth. Let's say that again. People look confused. Scientists can describe our reality in terms of five things, in terms of time, in terms of an agent, in terms of a force, in terms of space, and in terms of matter. What does the Bible's first line say? It establishes all of those things. In the beginning, time. God, who's the agent, created, there's your force, the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. And after that opening line, which establishes God as the supernatural sovereign creator, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God and God alone is the agent that makes everything. So the mode of creation, or the means by which he does it, is by God speaking. It's by divine imperative. He basically decides and then speaks things into existence. Now... In the first five chapters of Genesis 1, there's a mode in which God creates. God is the agent, and there's an order to creation. 
meaning that in every day of creation, he has pre-decided certain things will be made, and there's also finality, right? So as Einstein once said, God doesn't play dice. He, doesn't, he didn't wake up one day and spontaneously decide to make one thing or another. There was structure, there was order, and there was finality. At the end of each day, it says there was an evening and a morning, meaning... When he finished creating one aspect of creation, like the land and the seas, like plant life, like animals, after he finished creating that particular aspect of creation, he stopped forever. Meaning there was never, ever, ever going to be any more creation because there was order, there was structure, and there was finality. One, uh, one argument people try, and, like you were saying, people try and say, you know, how could... You know, something from nothing, something from something. The biggest arguments they say are what the Big Bang theory, right? Right. Evolution, and then the other argument here is um, that they try and counteract the Bible with is they say, well, the dinosaurs were on the Earth, so how could the Bible start and say in the beginning, and the dinosaurs existed? So that's another argument they try and use to counteract with what the Bible says, because they say, look, people find dinosaur bones, right? Is that a lie? So it's another tool they try and use to go against the Bible. So the basic question is, how does the biblical narrative reconcile with the Big Bang, with dinosaurs and evolution? I'm going to get to evolution in a second. And I'm, I'm so glad you are here and ask that question. Because I personally love the Big Bang. I love it. Because you know what the Big Bang tells me? The Big Bang tells me that the smarter we get, the Big Bang tells us the universe had a birthday. The universe had a beginning. Meaning, just as it says in Genesis 1-1, history had a concrete start. And if a sovereign, provident, supernatural God who holds the world in his hand says, let there be light. The Big Bang is exactly what I would expect would happen. I'm going to get to evolution in a second, and now the, the, the other question is dinosaurs. So do I believe dinosaurs are a lie? Well, no. People use their God-given minds to use their senses to discern what they see in the world. Now, when we look at the Genesis narrative, right? There are some people who will will have arguments. They'll say there's a gap in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Some people will say the days are literal 24-hour days. Some people will say the days are figurative, meaning they're eons, they're millions and millions of years, right? The Bible never gives us scientific specifics about how God made things, right? So all I can say, biblically speaking, is that the most intelligent approach we as Christians can take is that God was silent on where dinosaurs fit into creation, so I can't give you a clean scientific answer. That that I am uncertain about. What I'm very certain about, though, is that in his creation, he was the exclusive created agent, there was structure, and there was order. Meaning, he could have made the dinosaurs a million years ago, he could have done it 10 million years ago, but I can't, not knowing the mind of God, give you a precise answer. And, to close that point, many people will say, well, how come the Bible never mentions dinosaurs? And my answer would be, well, the Bible isn't a scientific textbook. The Bible's main thrust, the Bible's main 
idea is to give us a awareness of Jesus Christ and the path of redemption. So you could have a thorough understanding of dinosaurs, but never know Christ. And that's kind of pointless. So the point of the Bible, just like when I was in medical school, when I opened a textbook on anatomy, I would expect to see lessons on where the liver is, where the heart is. I could never ask my medical textbook, you know, what time the cafeteria opens, because it has a specific purpose in delivering information. So I mentioned this, that Christians may have disagreements about what days actually mean in Genesis. Some groups will say the days were 24 hours. Some groups will say the days were just stages. They were certain acts of creation. Some will say there's a gap in between Genesis 1 and Gen- uh, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And these are all individuals who can have lovely intellectual conversations in the basement of a church. But as long as we all agree that God did it, that God did it, that God did it, when we come to the main sanctuary, we're fine. Because there's a lot of scientific stuff we may never know precisely, but as long as we agree that God did it, everything else falls into place. So, you asked about evolution. And it's crucial to understand that a Darwinian worldview, or the worldview that life as we know it evolved from goo. So we went from stuff that's goo to things you see in the zoo, right? That's the Darwinian worldview. (laughs) That somehow in the beginning there was just stuff, and then the blind, purposeless forces of nature made human beings out of nothing. That is never, ever, ever compatible with what the Bible says. Because again, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God did it and no one else. People had purpose. Creation had a purpose. God had design and order. In fact, what an evolutionary worldview will tell you is that you're just an animal. That you are no different from creation. You're not special. You and a monkey and a tiger and a, and a flower, you're all the same thing, which is Hogwash, because Genesis 1.26 specifically says, God speaks in and amongst himself, and he says, let us make man in our own image. And he actually, as a potter molds clay, forms human beings from the dust of the ground and then breathes life into him. Humankind has, has a specific place in creation. We are separate and distinct from everything else. So yes, all human beings are very special, and we are not animals. In fact, when God said, let us make man, that was an indication of purpose and intent, and man is also given intelligence, morality, and reason. You're not going to hire a monkey to do your taxes. Why? Because they're different. They're not moral intelligent, rational entities in the order of creation. So, as I said at the beginning, if you're going to attack Genesis, you're going to attack it in the first 11 chapters. So what is Darwinian evolution? It's attack on Genesis 1 and 2. It begins not as a scientific theory. It begins as a philosophy that says, how can we debunk Genesis 1 and 2? And that's the answer. God didn't do it. What is radical environmentalism? Radical environmentalism says that human beings, we, we in nature are one. So if the choose between a plant, a rock, and a tree, you have to throw dice in the air. That is wrong. Human beings are to be stewards of the environment, but we are special. We are set apart. We are supposed to have dominion over the 
created order, creation ordinances. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this is before anyone was chosen. This was before anyone was circumcised. This is before any covenants. This is before God establishes any particular relationship with a particular group of people. He establishes into the fabric of creation what are called creation ordinances. This means it's a global ordinance that applies to all of humanity, whether you believe in God or not. They're ordinances that God basically set in motion that says, this is how creation is supposed to work. And this is what Ligonier.org says. As far as creation ordinance go, the requirements are binding on everyone. You may ignore or deny the creation ordinances, but you cannot escape them. So here are the creation ordinances. The first one is the sanctity of life. God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. What does that tell us? That life is good, that life is sacred, that human beings being made in the image and likeness of God, that life is valued. What's the attack on the sanctity of life in the modern era? Dehumanization, where we begin to say some life is less valuable than others, where the bad guys are less valuable than others. If there were a group of Satanists right now who began protesting outside, with picket signs that said, we don't like God. Guess what? As a function of a creation ordinance, God says their lives are sacred. This is why all human beings, regardless of race, color, creed, whatever, it doesn't matter what language you speak, you have an inherent value because as a function of God mandating it, your life is sacred. The second creation ordinance is Government. God commands Adam to have dominion, to rule, and subdue creation. This means human beings now have the privilege to have structure, to have order, to have dominion over their environment. This doesn't mean abuse. This doesn't mean exploitation. It just means God has gifted us with creation that we can now use for our own benefit. The third creation ordinance is the sanctity of labor. As it says in Genesis 2.15, God made Adam and he put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it, which essentially means he was to work. So in God's design for the created order, human beings are never meant to be on a beach having a cocktail all day long. In heaven, we're going to be working. We're going to be laboring. This is where the good old-fashioned Protestant work ethic comes from. Labor is godly because there is such a thing as godly labor. My son Nigel loves this show called Thomas the Train, right? There's, there's Thomas, there's Percy, there's Edward, there's Gordon, and there's the boss of the train, Mr. Topham Hat, right? And he's always giving the trains a job. And all the trains are always so happy to have work to do, and they pride themselves on being really, really useful. Thomas the train gets the idea that labor is godly because they realize as a function of their being built, it's in their DNA to actually labor and to work. So all human beings, labor is godly. 
The fourth creation ordinance is the Sabbath, which is basically the sanctity of time, as it says in Genesis 2, chapters 2 and 3. In life, people can make uh, special or sacred spaces, like if there's a roadside memorial where there was a car crash. People actually make a special place in a physical space as a memorial, as a remembrance to what happened there. What the Sabbath is, the seventh day, it's a memorial in time. So every one out of seven days, we basically say, we take time to pause, we take time to stop laboring, and we take time to rest, to recognize the one who made all of creation. And because human beings were made on the sixth day, the Sabbath is day number seven, which tells us in and of itself, we were made for something bigger. We were made for something better. We were made on day number six to glorify God on day number seven. So we were made for a greater purpose. The fifth creation ordinance is the sanctity of marriage. Scripture reference, Genesis 2, verse 24. God did not make one type of human being. He made two types, male and female. And it's not good for any one of them to be alone, which tells us that God made human beings for relationships. So when a biological man and a biological woman become married, now those two are one flesh. Now here is what's so critically important. God is the one who defined what marriage was. He's the one who made it. The only thing Adam did was receive It wasn't Adam's idea. God basically said, this is what marriage is. And he then told Adam, man and woman shall become one flesh. And when we make connection to the New Testament now in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us a marriage between a biological man and biological woman is a mirror of the relationship between Christ and his church. So, if in the modern era... A court or a person or culture at large redefines marriage. This is why this is such a big deal. If a human being or a a legal body redefines marriage, they're essentially telling God that he was wrong. And it's blaspheming the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage is never, ever defined by people. It's only described. Even when the patriarchs existed, when there was polygamy, there was one man and there was one woman. That's the way human society has been built for thousands of years. You have a man and a woman having children, and that's the primary social unit of society. Chapter 3, The Fall. The fall of humankind basically talks about when sin first entered into the world. Genesis 1 and 2, there was no sin. Genesis chapter 3 is when sin entered uh, the picture. And when people call Genesis 3 the fall of humankind, the the name fall itself implies a moral creature that is able to make moral decisions, and therefore those decisions have real consequences. And how the fall happened is the serpent, the devil, asked Eve, did God really say? 
and he invited her to make a choice. And that choice was either you trust God and believe him, or you make your own decision and figure it out by your own experiences. And God, out of his love, gave Adam and Eve a free choice. You can either obey or disobey. They believe the serpent's lie. That said, God said, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The serpent said, surely you will not die. And the serpent weaponized the lie. Adam and Eve believed it. They tried to live outside of God's will. And the result was sin entered into the picture. And yes, Adam and Eve got exactly what the devil said. They got knowledge of good and evil. But the cost of that now was separation from God and bearing the penalty of sin. The key thing to realize in Genesis chapter 3 is that when the serpent had a conversation with Eve, she made two critical errors. She both subtracted from God's word and she added to it. The serpent asked Eve, what did God say? She said, we may eat from any tree of the garden. What God said was, you may eat from any tree of the garden freely. So she took away from God's word. The serpent then said, can you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Eve said, God says we cannot eat from it or touch it. So she added to God's word. And that same mistake, taking away from God's word and adding to it, is going on every single day in our reality. And the result is motivated by this idea that God got it wrong and we either have to edit it or correct what we want God's word to say. And the result is, is falling away and separating ourselves from what God's inerrant word really says. And this is the serpent's purpose always. His purpose is always to turn God's created order upside down. The, the, the devil always wants human beings to suffer. He always wants to separate them from God, and he does it by luring us, by tempting us upward, by alluring us and saying, if you do this, you will gain. But in reality, what we do is we not gain, we fall. Now, the fall had cataclysmic effects, not only in the Garden of Eden, but also for the entire world. So in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the picture. What now happens in Genesis chapter 4? We see the effects of sin. We see a fractured relationship between two brothers, between Cain and Abel. We have two brothers now where there's enmity, where there's strife. And Cain and Abel basically paint a picture of two different views of religion. Abel approached God the way God commanded someone to approach him. He brought firstlings of the flock. He brought the best of his animals. Cain brought Cain came to God the way he wanted to approach God. And he brought the firstlings of the fruit. And God regarded Abel's sacrifice because Abel had faith and basically followed the directions that God had instituted. Cain, on the other hand, said, no, 
I want to approach God my own way. And God, in his grace, even asked Cain, why are you angry? And Cain was furious. He was upset at God because God, God rejected him coming to God the way he wanted to. So what Cain did was, Cain was angry at God, but he couldn't get in a, in a wrestling match with God. He couldn't fight God. So instead, he took his anger out on his brother, Abel, and killed him. So the one who was angry at God took his rage, took his wrath out on the one who was pious, telling us, Genesis chapter 4 tells us that there will be those who live righteously and there will be those who honestly serve God and they will be killed for it. And God asked Cain the famous question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. The world will tell us silly things like, we have to love ourselves more before we can love anyone else. That is a lie. If you've ever seen children play, you know they love themselves. They are born in their DNA knowing that they are great. They are number one. No one ever needs instructions. <laughs> on how to love themselves more. We have to love God first, a vertical relationship, and that animates us loving our neighbor, horizontal relationship. Genesis chapter 5, real quick. First time I read this, I said, what is the point of all this? This is boring. Who cares what son Adam had, and then his son had, and then he begat this one? I was like, what's the point? How is this relevant to me? in the 21st century. Well, here's how it's relevant. The first is that Adam was a real person. Noah was a real person. So in the Bible, giving us a genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah, it's giving us a historical lineage of the men who begat different men following along the line. And, and this is good, every Hebrew name has a meaning. So when you read Genesis 5 and you see that Adam means man, Noah means rest or peace, the genealogy is actually giving us a picture of the gospel. So in Genesis 5, we go from Adam to Seth to Mahalel to Noah. So when you take the meanings of all those men's names, do you know what you get? This is what it says, Genesis 5. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring those who despair rest. That is in Genesis chapter 5. That's encoded in the names of the men from Adam to Noah. It's, it's things like this which say there is no possible way Moses writing this 1,400 years before Christ was born could ever make this up. Because this is telling us about Christ in Genesis chapter 5. Chapter 6 is Noah and the flood. But this is the crucial point. Humankind, sin in the world, Genesis chapter 6 says that all flesh became corrupt and the world was filled with violence. So Genesis chapter 6 details the flood, which is an instrument of God's judgment, because God being holy simply cannot say never mind to sin. 
But God, while instituting the flood, instituting his judgment, also saved Noah and his family and all the animals by means of the ark. So the flood narrative tells us that God is both just and he's merciful. Did God have to save Noah? He didn't. Because the text says that everyone was guilty and all flesh was corrupted. So Genesis 6 tells us that God's both just and he's merciful. And God never has to actively search for sinners to punish. But what he does actively do is search for individuals to save. God never has to get up and look around and say, hmm, who sinned today? Because everyone always sins all the time. But what he does actively do as a function of his grace is he institutes a plan of action to deliver and save those whom he freely chooses. And the flood narrative tells us that God was faithful to the one, Noah and his family, who had faith in him. And it took Noah approximately 100 years to build the ark. That's a rough estimate. And during that time period, he was using his prophetic voice to preach and tell others around him about the coming flood, but no one listened. So out of the millions of people on planet Earth at that time, only eight were preserved and kept in the safety of the ark. The last thing I'll mention is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 1 to 11, we have kind of a global view of reality where it involves the entire world. Then in Genesis chapter 12, the, 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 the lens zooms in. And now we focus in on Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the last point of today's lesson. So from Genesis chapter 12 um, onward, it begins to describe the Abrahamic covenant. Here's the key idea. God entered into a covenant with Abraham, and he decided to bless Abraham so that he could be a blessing. So Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, and he entered into a relationship with him via a covenant. So what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement that God, uh, that is imposed by God between himself and human beings. Within the covenant are certain stipulations that specify covenantal obligations. If one remains faithful and keeps the commandments, there are many blessings. If one does not obey the commandments, there will be adverse consequences. So in a covenant, God never has to make a covenant, but he wants to give blessings. He wants to give protection. He wants to give human beings an assurance that he is trustworthy. So he takes the first step towards us and basically says, this is the promise that I will be giving to you. And therefore, there's a special and particular relationship with certain individuals. Contracts in our modern world are based on mutual distrust, right? When you, when you get a new job, you sign a contract because your employer thinks you're not going to do what you say you're going to do. So a contract is based on mutual distrust, but a covenant is based on mutual trust. You sign a contract in order to, in order to protect your interests now that you are forced and have to do something. But in a covenant, God gives us everything. In a covenant, God wants to give, wants to provide, and so he gives of himself 
for our sake. So the Abrahamic covenant, there are going to be four Ps. And all covenants in the Bible, whether it's Adamic, Noahic, New Covenant, all covenants are characterized by four Ps. There are going to be the parties involved, there's going to be a promise, there are going to be provisions, and there's also going to be a picture. So, parties, promise, provisions, and a picture. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the setup to the Abrahamic covenant. God basically finds Abraham. Abraham was a man who lived in current-day Iraq, which tells us what? He is someone who didn't know God. He was a guy, if we follow the cultures of the times, probably was worshipping some type of a moon, god, or goddess. He was an uncircumcised pagan idolater. But by his grace... God finds someone based upon his divine decision and decides to enter into a relationship with Abraham. And God basically told Abraham, get up, go from the place you are, and I'm going to send you to a place where I will bless you. And Abraham obeyed. And then the formal parts of the Abrahamic covenant we find in Genesis chapter 15, 9 to 21, and then in chapter 17. So the Abrahamic covenant, there are two parties. There's a God and there's Abraham. And Abraham is representative not only of his biological descendants, but of his spiritual descendants that will be incorporated into the promise through Jesus Christ. There's a promise to Abraham. The promise of the Abrahamic covenant is land, is descendants, and a blessing. The promise of the Abrahamic covenant is land, descendants, and blessing. So why is this important? Because ultimately, Jesus was a seed of Abraham. So God initiates the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, but ultimately it's going to have a fulfillment through Jesus Christ. So God begins working in and through history with Abraham, blessing him so he can be a blessing, so ultimately that covenant can be fulfilled 2,000 years later with Jesus Christ. And through Abraham's seed, blessings will subsequently come to the entire world. And this was based upon total consecration to God. So blessed to be a blessing. The provisions of the Abrahamic covenant is that God required Abraham to be blameless and that all of his descendants kept the covenant that that God made with Abraham. The picture or the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is twofold. The outward sign was circumcision. The inward picture, the inward sign was faith. Because Abraham believed God, he took his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah, and because Abraham obeyed what God said, God said, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you. And once again, the ultimate promise of the Abrahamic blessing would be fulfilled 2,000 years later with the birth of Jesus Christ. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, and the ultimate blessing would come through the Messiah, Jesus. So the final thing I'll say is this. When we explore the meaning of the Abrahamic covenant, 
we see that God's plans are always much larger than we can see or understand. Therefore, we must obey and trust even if we don't see the big picture. In Abraham's time, he was concerned with, you know, material things. He was concerned initially with just having a baby because his wife was barren. He didn't have any descendants. So in his view of the world, it was very, very narrow and immediate. But he could have never imagined that thousands of years later, through his seed, would be born the Messiah, Jesus. It would have completely blown his entire uh, view of reality. That is something Abraham could never see, but God did. Because God's plans are much larger than we can see or understand. And God works all things together for the good for those who trust him. Because God is eternal, he thus has long-term plans that we can never see or be privy of. And although he may have a long arc of a plan, and although he may have a plan for many different individuals, this never overrides the specific plans he may have for certain individuals. And guess what? Even though Abraham was, was promised land, he ended his life not receiving the land. Abraham was a wanderer He was a nomad all of his life. Abraham never got land, but what he got was something better. He got a relationship with God. And this is a very dangerous statement I'm about to make. You can have land, but not have God, which means that land is now a curse. You could have money and not have God. You can have power and not have God. And all of those things are pointless. The point is always to have a saving relationship with God. Because just as Abraham was a sojourner, that also tells us we are sojourner. Abraham never found rest in a physical place because Hebrew tells us he had his eyes on a heavenly city. He had his eyes on a heavenly rest. So as I've said before, when we, as Christians, live here on planet Earth, once we profess faith in Jesus, our natural passports are revoked, and we are merely sojourning here in the natural world, never seeking to establish roots here on Earth, but in a heavenly place. So that is Genesis in a nutshell. Next month, we're going to do Exodus through Deuteronomy with a particular emphasis on uh, Exodus. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.